Hi, everyone. Before we get started today, I have a listener to thank for a donation. Laura Smith sent us a donation via PayPal. So thank you so much, Laura, for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. If you would like to donate to the Messy Studio Podcast, just go to MessyStudioPodcast.com and click the Donate button. It's a yellow button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate, and there you can submit a single-time donation or a recurring monthly donation for literally any amount. So once again, that's www.MessyStudioPodcast.com and click the Donate button. I also want to let everyone know that if you're listening to this on the day of release, which unfortunately this week is a Sunday, we're a day late in getting it out to you, Um, but today is my last day at my normal job uh, as a bartender. I'm going to be focusing from here on out on doing audio production full time, as well as running my other businesses. So I really want to thank everyone who's been sharing the show, using our affiliate links, and donating. It's scary to commit to doing your craft full-time as your, as your main occupation, and that support from you, the listeners, is why I'm able to do it. I'm also going to be doing some more podcasts and audiobooks, and I'll try to keep everyone up to date on what's going on with that, but what I really need from you, the listeners, is some testimonials for my website. So if you've enjoyed the audio production quality of the Messy Studio podcast and you've enjoyed hearing my voice for the past few years, please send me an email at rtickner.core at gmail.com. And I'll put a link in the description of this episode and send me a testimonial that I can put up on my website. Or you can just submit the contact form at MessyStudioPodcast.com. So once again, special thanks to Laura Smith and to everyone else who's been donating and sharing the show and using our affiliate links. We really appreciate your support. On with the show. Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. On today's episode, we are talking about symbols in abstraction. Abstract artists find many ways to bring meaning to their work. For some, this may be purely an investigation of color, line, or other elements. For others, it is the expression of emotion or evoking aspects of the visual world. Today, we're going to look at another powerful way that artists can bring meaning to abstraction through the use of symbols, whether personal in origin or more universally recognized. With me, as always, is Rebecca Kroll. Hello, everyone. So I was thinking of this topic because um, about a month ago in December, um, there was news that came out about uh, this discovery of this huge number of ancient rock paintings um, that were uh, found in a Colombian rainforest. And it was just like face, the rock face was just covered with figures of animals and humans and all these symbols. And it, you, you know, you read about something like that or, or this discovery of this. And it's like, there's so much meaning there that's um, hard to decipher because at this point, <laughs> we're not sure what they mean. Um, but it just got me thinking about um, how how powerful symbols can be, and it shows the way that uh, ever since the beginning of time, people have used symbols as a kind of visual language. Um, here in New Mexico, when I'm out hiking, I often come across petroglyphs, and they just um, they always make me wonder, you know, what do they really mean? Why are they placed where they are? And, you know, certain symbols are kind of um, uh, too obscure at this point in time to really understand. But it's just an intriguing topic. Um, and I was also thinking about it uh, because of some discussion online with 
people um, in the member classroom of Cold Wax Academy, there's a little bit of talk about how to use symbols. Um, and it's this idea of this powerful, usually simplified or essence of something that you can put into your work, whether it's something that has personal meaning to you alone and yet um, engages you with the work on that level or whether it's something more recognized. Um, so anyway, a topic that we're going to get into with abstraction today about how you might think about symbols in your own work, whether you're using them now or whether it's something you might like to get into. Um, and it's just, they're, they're everywhere. Symbols are everywhere, you know, in our daily lives. And there are so many that are recognized by everyone, like every language and religion and government and organization has certain abstract symbols, and whether they're colors or images. Well, they are the earliest form of language and the most the most basic and universal. And that's why with some of these ancient cultures, we over time we are actually able to decipher them. Um, and, uh, and a lot of work has been done on uh, particularly uh, uh, e- Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and now we, we understand uh, almost the entirety of that language. Um, and so that there is a lot that can be done with that over time with study, um, and it's it, it it's be in a big way because the the symbols are so recognizable and so universal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certain ones will always be ambiguous, I think, but other ones, especially when they're connected to language, and there's some kind of system, you know, where you can say this one repeats here and here, um, and yeah, cuneiform as well. Yeah, like yeah, um, and you think about. There's something that we are able to connect with immediately um, through this type of visual language. I was thinking about, you know, in contemporary world, like logos. I mean, the whole design of logos is uh, basically creating symbols that distill meaning. And, you know, even silly things like emojis, they distill facial expressions expressing emotion into some, you know, silly little cartoon face. But we get it right away. And there's these like subtle differences, you know, how do the eyes look? How do the, you know, is there is there a tear coming out of the eyes or whatever? And it's right. And they are they are universal. Yes. Um, you know, you can you can almost communicate with people using entirely emojis in an entirely recognizable way across cultures and languages. Yeah, and people do, um, you know, more and more like in, you know, comments on online, you just see a string of emojis. <laughs> it's really kind of fascinating as as a universal language, and, and that's what symbols are. Uh, there are also, though, personal symbols that we're going to get into. Um, and But for the artist, you know, if you're, if you're thinking about kind of some kind of bridge between you're, uh, if, especially if you've been a more representational or realistic artist, um, some kind of a bridge into abstraction that brings some meaning, recognizable images can be a place to start, images that mean something to you, a particular animal or plant or whatever it is. Um, it's a way to connect more meaningfully with abstraction if you're new to it. And if you've been doing it a long time, you may already have these symbols in your work. Um, But the idea of putting in something a little more recognizable into an abstract context is something that may be um, another step if you've been working with abstraction. 
um, a contour drawing of something or something, some type of line that means something to you to become a personal symbol. Um, I guess as an aside, you know, symbolism in realistic art has been used for centuries, of course, um, cultural symbols and so on. Um, many paintings throughout art history have symbolic objects or symbolic settings. And sometimes when you get into the details of a painting, you realize there's a bigger meaning to it. And a really interesting example is um, Jan van Eyck's The Arnolfini Wedding. This is a pretty famous painting you may be familiar with. And there's all these symbols built into it. And when I was reading about it, it was so interesting because some of them I've heard before, like there's a little dog in it that symbolizes fidelity. Um, but there are also symbols uh, of death that relate to the woman in the portrait. And it's thought that perhaps this was done after her death and is in fact a memorial painting. And those are symbols like there's a chandelier with candles and the candles on her side where she's standing are are blown out, they're extinguished. And there's a couple of other things in there that kind of point to that possibility at least. And um, I think it's a bit of a mystery, but uh, anyway, there's these kind of hidden details in, in a lot of, say, Renaissance pictures and so on that are just fascinating. But, you know, you can take that same idea um, into contemporary art. And um, I think of the artist Frida Kahlo, uh, who uses a lot of symbolism, who used a lot of symbolism in her work in a kind of magic realism way. I mean, you could, you could see actual figures and animals and objects uh, in the work but they're often in the context of an abstract background. Like they're not um, in place. It's not a scene. Some of them are, but some are just sort of objects and they're just placed around the picture plane and they tell a story. Um, and other artists like Paul Clay is, you know, famous for different types of symbolism uh, with things that are recognizable. And he's edging a little more into abstraction. His would tend to be outlines uh, contour drawings, not rendered realistically. So, you know, it's a huge topic. We can't go into all that, but. Right. And there is, um, I think, particularly in, in art history where um, uh, the the use of symbols has a lot to do with, with religious iconography mm -hmm. um, and uh, like the use of halos in Renaissance paintings. But moving into bridging into the more abstract, if we go back a bit further, we have these um, like very early, like Venus figurines that have, um, kind of distorted, uh, hu human shapes. Yes. Um, fertility that, uh, that are very important, uh, in terms of, of religious significance for the people of the time and yeah. representing, uh, female fertility and, and things like that. Um, but they, they do deal with a, a distorted human form that's, that's abstracted in some way. Yes. Um, and you know, Absolutely, in every culture, in all time, there have been so many symbols. Uh, but that's a good example because presumably the the figure could have been made realistically, but the uh, female characteristics are exaggerated because it's thought that this was a fertility um, symbol. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just love all this stuff. I love it in relation to other cultures, to anthropology, to art, art Western art history. So many things. Um, but I guess today what we want to do is just kind of focus in on um, on abstraction. And 
ideas for bringing this into your own work if you're if you're interested in this. And there's obviously plenty of other reading and research that you can do. Um, but it's kind of an intriguing, I'd say, sort of a portal into uh, bringing more personal meaning to your work or providing more universal meaning in your work. Um, and I also want to say that, you know, we've been just briefly talking about recognizable objects, say, in more realistic art or something recognizable as a figure. Um, working in abstraction doesn't rule out recognizable imagery. It's just taking it out of a realistic context, like I was saying with Frida Kahlo. It's not part of an illusionistic scene, per se, um, but... Uh, or it may be part of a somewhat surreal scene, as her work often is, or it's just part of a pattern, or it's on a flat background, or there's some other way of handling the image in the composition that says to us, this is not an object in a setting that we would recognize. This is an object that is being um, imbued with symbolic meaning. Um, and as abstract artists, we can set up that situation so that the viewer knows this, uh, as, as opposed to trying to decipher, you know, a Renaissance painting or something. Um, and I mentioned Paul Cleus, Clay a second ago. So he uses things like arrows and eyes and fish. And the meaning of these symbols is not really explicit, or it may be uh, used a little bit differently in different paintings. Um, another artist that comes to my mind is um, William Wiley, a California artist whose work is known for this huge range of personal symbols and iconography, and he combines them in many different ways in his work. And, you know, he's been criticized as saying, um, hey, we don't know what this stuff means to you. Um, why are you doing it? Squeak Carnwath is another California artist that does this. We don't, we're not privy to what this really means to you most of the time. You may tell us a few things, but why are you using all these symbols all the time that are so personal? And I think the other side of that is um, maybe we don't need to know what that means exactly to the artist, but if they're put together skillfully and in a, in a way that um, engages our imaginations, then we have our own associations with them. And they also have to work obviously visually, so they're part of a composition. Um, but it, to me, when I look at work like that, I just think, hey, you know what this says to me is we are all complex people with complex interior lives. <laughs> and we don't, we, don't not, we don't have to know or maybe we don't care what all that is to someone else. But it's a representation of our complexity and our depth and the fact that over a lifetime, we do gather symbols. We do gather personal things that mean something to us. Um, it may be an animal. It may be an object. It may be um, some symbol for a house or something else. Um, you know, in my own work, I have some of these things. I have uh, lines that I use that sometimes they're trails that I've walked on. And when I'm drawing them, I'm actually thinking of an actual hike that I took or a trail that I walk off and, and it guides my hand in, in how to draw this. Or it might just be a little more, um, you know, symbolic <laughs> where it's not an actual pathway, but it, it gives the idea of a pathway. Or maybe the lines symbolize um, plant life here in the, 
in the desert. Um, I've also used triangles in my earlier work a lot. And a triangle that was balanced on its tip was, it just kept coming up in my work for quite a long time when I was engaged in so many, so much stuff in my personal life, raising children, working, making art, that I always felt, uh, you know, like I could tip off balance. And this triangle kept showing up balanced on its tip. And I thought, I didn't sit around and invent this thing. It just came out. And then when I realized that it had this personal meaning, then I started using it more consciously. But I love that our mind can come up with this stuff. It's sort of like what happens in dreams, right? Sometimes your dreaming mind is amazing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that these um, these symbols in a lot of ways speak to our subconscious on a level that, that language doesn't reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it maybe speaks to some kind of uh, collective unconscious. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. And, uh, and there is that, I think that is what makes it universal. Uh, there's, uh, there's an aspect of this that's, that's very kind of like esoteric as well. It's, um, this is, this is the same kind of thing that is going on with, with tarot cards, for instance, or, uh, or a lot of these kind of methods of fortune telling, um, that use symbols that, that speak to some part of us that doesn't communicate with language. Right. And even just talking about them, it kind of stirs something, you know, it's like, wow, there are, there are realms of the subconscious that they are in, in a lot of ways, um, collective. And I'm going to talk about that in a little more detail in a minute. Real quick, I wanted to remind everyone to use our Blick affiliate link when you order your art supplies online. That link is either available at MessyStudioPodcast.com slash Blick, or you can just go to MessyStudioPodcast.com and click the Blick button. It's a button in the upper left-hand corner that says Blick, and that will take you straight through to the regular Blick website. But when you go through our affiliate link, we will earn a 10% commission, which does a lot to support the show. I always suggest that people just bookmark that link and then you don't even have to think about it. You're just supporting the show every time you buy art supplies. I also want to give everyone a heads up that right now, Gamblin products are 40% off. So this is a great time to get your cold wax medium or your Blick oil colors. So once again, that's www.messystudiopodcast.com slash Blick. All right, let's get back into it. Okay, so let's take a little closer look at symbols that are used in abstraction and Starting with kind of what is their power? We were just touching on that uh, before the ad read. The the um, the way that they they're beyond language many times, and so they do have this really direct way of communication. And what I've been noticing, looking at student work where symbols are used, is that the most simple form of whatever the image is can be the most powerful. Um, for example, um, there was a student who was using uh, a repeated shape in a painting and was, you know, asking for feedback on it. And it was it was a cube, and it was kind of representing isolation, our current situation. And my opinion about that was that you didn't need three of them or four of them. Uh, one cube and developing that idea would be more powerful. And even though the idea might be, well, we're all in our own little box kind of thing, you know, what's the simplest way of saying something? What, how can it be distilled? And that's really what 
what symbols are, right? They're very uh, distilled. Um, another reason they're powerful is that they can represent these bigger collective ideas like cultural ideas and, and religious ideas and, um, and things related to, you know, your own country, symbols of a country. And when we work with symbols personally, those things are also available. I mean, if, if we're identifying with a particular culture or country, you know, we may adopt some of those symbols in our own work for a reason. You know, they can support whatever personal thing we're trying to say. And then when you use symbols, another powerful aspect of them is um, they, uh, they do have this ability to communicate very directly and very simply. And so in thinking about that, um, you don't, it, it's easy to overstate. And I think that's what I was saying about this student that was repeating the same symbol. Um, you can get into this idea that, hey, I've got something I want to say with this symbol, and I'm going to tell you the entire story. Um, and yet the power of symbol also is we each bring our own associations to it on some level. So if you're um, using too many symbols or overstating a symbol, you're blocking off certain interpretations that might be meaningful to the viewer. And so it's interesting to kind of find that sweet spot where you're evoking something, but not dictating it. Um, and, you know, what, again, the simplicity of it. Um, if you think about a Renaissance painting of, you know, say Eve is holding an apple. Well, that tells a whole story that people know, or many right. people know. Um, and you could further simplify it by just an apple, you know, if you wanted to, to go that way. Um, or an apple with a bite out of it. Apple with a bite out of it. Um, where have we seen that before? Which is the symbol <laughs> that we've all seen everywhere. Yes. Yeah. Hmm, I never made that association. <laughs> but, you know, a figure in a particular uh, with at a particular posture or a figure with a certain object also in the painting could convey a whole lot and you don't need a whole a whole scene, a whole narrative. Um, so anyway, that's all about just sort of distilling things and um, and also being clear that the image you're using is symbolic. You don't want to distract with um, too much background or other setting. Um, it has to do also with where the, the object is placed in the painting. If it's a painting, um, is it front and center? It, does that make it obvious that it's very important? Is it tucked away discreetly so that the viewer has to find it? Um, you know, there's lots of ways to play with this. And when I go through these different ideas about the power of abstraction, I mean, the power of symbols, it they really fit so well with abstraction because so much about abstraction also overall is... Um, a distillation, a distillation of experience, a distillation of an observation, and a distillation of a thought. And so the use of symbols in abstractions, um, it just furthers that idea. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about more about universal symbols. We were kind of touching on that a little bit before the break, and um, about this connection through visual imagery to some something bigger than yourself, you're kind of recognizing the universality of something. Um, and it can also be, you know, meaningful to you personally, and you interpret it in your own ways. So 
some of these ways that these universal symbols appear, um, they are found over time in many cultures. And so the meaning of the symbol may be specific to the culture or will be, but there's also something universal about them. And things like um, circles, crosses, um, mazes, spirals, triangles, um, the images themselves are abstract rather than descriptive and open to interpretation depending on the culture in which they appear. Um, and this also includes, um, we mentioned um, types of, of language, written language, all written language is abstract in a way, right? Like these are symbols for sounds and, uh, and or uh, symbols for numbers. And so these particular, uh, the particular use of letters, words, um, numbers in works of art also has a symbolic uh, aspect to it, which is really interesting. And this whole idea also of archetypes, right? The word archetype means original pattern. That's like this embedded thing in our DNA or something. Um, Carl Jung had this idea that certain images have universal meaning, uh, universal impact, and they are the product of a collective unconscious. Um, and he said there are forms or images of a collective nature which occur practically all over the earth as constituents of myths and at the same time as individual products of unconscious. Um, and he had these things he called archetypes. He had four archetypes, which I, <laughs> I'm not going to go into, but the persona, um, I think that's like your character, um, the animus and anima, which is the male and female aspects of every person, the shadow and the self. Um, but from those ideas came certain uh, Jungian-based characters like the hero, the outlaw, the caregiver, the magician, the creator. And these are archetypal characters in so many um, stories and myths and works of art. Um, and they, they just, they tap into this sense of our bigger selves, you know, that we, we all may have many aspects of these archetypes within us, and we may identify more strongly with one or another. So it's this whole realm of this more psychological um, aspect of symbols that's pretty interesting if you, if you get into Jung at all. <laughs> and I early on, I read a lot of stuff. Um, one of... Uh, uh, some of his books early on were just influential to me in stirring my imagination and thinking there's so much more to people than we realize and to our own experience and our collective experience. So um, one of his early books, Memory, Dreams, and Re one of the books I read early on, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections, I read it in my 20s. It just hit me over the head. So... <laughs> If you've never delved into Jung, I recommend it. Um, there's another whole category of this kind of universal symbolism, which is called sacred geometry. Um, and that um, is considered uh, very ancient and ways of uh, patterning that explore um, underlying energy in all things. And 
it can be seen in sacred settings like churches, um, stained glass windows, but it's also related to certain patterns that come up in, in plant life, for example, or animal life. Um, it's said that every natural pattern of growth or movement comes back to one or more geometric shapes. And this, again, is a whole realm that's very interesting to look into. Um, yeah, obviously, there's whole books written about this, and so we're not going to yeah. completely unpack it in just a couple minutes no, on the podcast. No, but uh, I was exposed to it a couple years ago at a, a workshop that um, I did with uh, – I was in Spain and the couple that ran the retreat center were really involved in this and they had us drawing some of these things. And it was really, it was very fascinating. Um, symbolic color is also really interesting. That differs between cultures. Like um, white is considered the color of death in China and other Asian cultures and worn at funerals. Well, in Western cultures, you know, that role is obviously black. Um, blue has different meanings across cultures um here we associate blue with baby boys um blue is associated with the feminine in other cultures um so anyway there's all kinds of association with color and so you can use color symbolically as well and the last thing i wanted to mention was child art which is full of symbolism and we're going to do another podcast just about that um so um i think that these you know, it's a lot. Yes, we're just skimming the surface. But if any of this kind of sparks your imagination, um, it's worth delving into a little bit in, say, a sketchbook or journal. And you may not even be really aware at first of what does have meaning for you, which colors, which shapes, um, are there particular numbers or letters or contour drawings of things that could play a part in your abstract work. And um, give it another level, you know, give it a, a, an added conceptual meaning. And I think that the use of symbols is not even something that is is optional. I think that that you you will find symbols coming out in your work, particularly in something that's very driven by uh, by the unconscious like um, abstraction. Uh, it, and and so I it, it, it'd be like dreaming without symbols. I think that it's it's not possible. And so. <laughs> yeah understanding these symbols and using them a little bit more intentionally will bring more intention into your artwork and will help you to understand your own art better and the art of other people. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I mean, you are if you're an abstract painter, artist, you're already using them and you may not be aware of it. Um, but the colors you gravitate towards, the shapes, uh, the interactions of the elements, there's something there. And if you can identify it um, and maybe bring more focus to it. It could be a really way to, uh, interesting way to develop your work, um, and, and practice it consciously. Uh, and that's when I was talking earlier about the triangle shape, that's kind of what happened there. I mean, for some reason this triangle starts appearing and then, well, what, what does that mean? You know, and then, okay, I think I've got a little bit of a handle on it and then using it more consciously and then pulling back from it a little bit because then it started to seem a bit contrived or overworked or overdone. So you find this um, kind of balance point where it's still intuitive, it's still um, flexible as you're using it uh, in your work. Well, do you have any final thoughts to wrap up this episode? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think we bit off a bit more than we could chew here. But <laughs> <laughs> well, 
We often do. I mean, that is just such a big topic. But all I really wanted to do was say, hey, have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about this whole topic and how does it relate to your work? And maybe there's something in this kind of skimming the surface overview that that grabbed you that said, hey, I think maybe I'll look into this. And I do think it's a particularly useful path for artists looking for a way into abstraction and stepping away from literal representation or illusionistic scenes or whatever it is, it can be a bridge um, into something that is more conceptual. All right. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of The Messy Studio. For more from The Messy Studio, please check out www.messystudiopodcast.com and sign up for the email list. You can also find The Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. For more from Rebecca Kroll, please check out www.rebeccacroll.com and Cold Wax Academy at www.coldwaxacademy.com and sign up for the email lists to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. The Messy Studio Podcast is a core publication management production. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody.